If you have a good time in the Lord so far, say amen. Revelation chapter 7, we're going to start reading from verse 15 through 17. When we get done reading, we'll pray, but do not close your Bibles. I want you to stay in chapter 7 because we're going to go back and we're going to pick up some other verses. And, uh, well, you'll get the idea in just a minute. Revelation chapter 7, verses 15 through 17 says this. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne and will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for this day that you've given us. Father, we pray today, Lord, that this will be your words and not mine. Father, I pray that you use your servant today in a mighty way, not for my glory, but for yours. That, Father, that your word will be able to go out, Lord, Lord, even through my stammering and stuttering. Still yet, I pray that your word will go forth. And Father, Lord, for those that are here today that may be discouraged, Lord, that they'll see your love and the compassion you have, Lord, for your people, us, those who are made in your image, all of mankind. Lord, you love us. And Father, I pray today they see your mercy and your glory. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, Father, I pray today they will see you for your beauty and your majesty. And Lord, for those here, Lord, who do know you, and maybe even like myself, hurting in some way, struggling, maybe depressed, discouraged, or just simply hurting. Father, I pray today that your words will be music to our ears a sweet savor to our senses, and comfort to our hearts. We pray this today in the name of your beautiful Son, Jesus. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Keep your Bibles open, if you will. This is loaded up on the app. <laughs> Something I do, uh, did forget to put in the bulletin uh, this morning was that we have the, I know Brother Kevin has mentioned about the fishing poles, uh, and after I had already printed off the bulletins, and y'all know I'm cheap at some things, uh, I didn't want to reprint everything, but uh, they brought in a bucket, they got it right back in the middle between the, where you go through the double doors, uh, that were taking up donations for fishing poles again this year for the, oh, I'm going to mess this up, Mary, help me, who's that Brittany works for? Children Home Society, thank you. Uh, it's actually not the one that Brittany actually works out of, or I guess it maybe they may disperse them through the whole thing. Um, but Brittany gave us a, a wonderful contact so that we could uh, get them. We need to support these folks who do this. These people help find homes for children who need loving homes. 
there is a need for that and there is a shortage of, of loving parents. There is a crisis in our country, if you haven't noticed. We see all the other stuff on the news, but the real crisis is that the home is under attack. And the home has been fractured in much of America. And when the home breaks down, everything else breaks down along with it because you have strong churches through having strong families. And so there's a need there, and we want to support them in, in many different ways. We're also supporting the Free Will Baptist Children's Home uh, down in Tennessee, as well as some others. And so um, we don't take your money and try to get rich with it down here. We send it back out to people who need it. Amen. Uh, and so we are thankful for the opportunity to be able to do that. So there's a bucket out there that uh, what they're looking for is just fishing poles with reels on them, you know, uh, nothing fancy. Uh, but could you imagine how many, just men and women both, how many of y'all fished, went fishing as a kid? How many of y'all still like to fish? Sal is nuts over this stuff, right? She loves to fish. We were going somewhere the other day and she was like, I wish we could just go fishing. I'm like, you know how many men are out there that wish they could hear their wife say that? I'm a lucky man. Um, but you know it's not about the fishing, right? You see, I remember when my dad taught me how to cast a fishing pole. I was excited about the fishing part. I was more excited about my dad showing me something, taking time with me. I remember my dad trying to teach me how to shoot a gun. Then my mother come out of the house. Luckily, we lived in a wooded area. We had a big mountain back so we could shoot into the dirt, right? Uh, we were very safe, by the way. Um, and so my dad wanted to, I wanted to learn how to shoot. So my dad said, all right. So he took me out there, and we're shooting this little 22. And I remember my mother come out. My mom said, let me see that thing. I started laughing. Dad looked at me and says, you probably ain't going to be laughing soon. We had a bunch of tin cans set up. Anybody ever ever shot a tin can? I kill a tin can. Y'all know what I'm saying? I kill a tin can. I put holes all in that thing. My mom come out there and never missed one. She shot the whole row down. Bam, bam. It wasn't even like taking time to line up. It was just bam, 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 bam. I wanted to take her to the fair that year and see if she could win me something, you know. You know what was great about that? Her dad had taught her how to do that too. There's something special about moms and dads taking time with their family. And so we need to be supporting places like that. By the way, they don't do it for the money. I, I can tell you that. And I can tell you the people who work there tell you they don't get rich doing that. Matter of fact, they probably owe more in student loans than they'll ever make in a year or four years' time. And they'll spend their life paying off loans so that they can have the education they need to be able to be considered for those jobs so that they can do it. It's a sacrifice. It's a labor of love. And we need to support that. That's enough of that. Let's get into Revelations this morning. I entitled the message, No More Tears. Reading a verse this week that was in my reading. Doesn't he bottle our tears. Doesn't he know every tear that falls from our eyes? And the answer is yes. And we see this passage here in Revelation. And at the end of this text in verse 17 says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I want you to understand what these people have gone through 
so that we can learn. There's an application for this passage today, even though I pray that we will not be with this particular group, and you'll understand what I mean in just a little bit. But in this passage, where I'll just kind of go ahead and lay it a little bit on you, I'll give you a taste of it. This passage is talking about those who have come through and accepted Christ during the Great Tribulation. Now, there are a lot of people who have different takes on Revelations. Some people think the church will be raptured up and taken home before the Tribulation. The Tribulation is a seven-year period. The Bible breaks that seven-year period up into two sections of 42 months. The second half being worse than the first half. The first half is bad. The second half, Jesus called the abomination of desolation. The cap of hell will be taken off and all hell will be unleashed on those people living at that time. The Bible describes an army more than you can really number of locusts that will come out but those locusts will be told not to eat the grass and the trees. Instead, they will bite the people. But they will not die. The Bible says they will pray for death and it will not come. And what would that have to do with us today? First off, I think we need to understand what is coming. Because the world needs to hear this message. But in the middle of God pouring out his wrath, guess what God has provided? Mercy. Mercy. And it's one thing to say that God's going to wipe the tears away from our eyes. And we've, many here have gone through great tragedy. But I tell you, the people who go through the tribulation will have tragedy even worse yet. And we're going to explain that as we go. But as I was preparing for this message, I was listening to a message by Skip Hitzig, which is uh, the pastor of Calvary Chapel out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he told of a story that the way he explained it, it this, was, this, this happened, this was true. There was a Christian husband and wife. They were well up in years and age. And the wife had, um, she had a, a disease that was terminal. And he had watched his wife suffer greatly. And as he started telling the story, man, my, I just got knots in my stomach. With everything going on, it just it took me to that place that I don't like to go. But he said as he was by her bedside, as she was going to soon pass, the hospice people told him it's just a matter of time and moments. Just whenever God decides to, to go ahead and have her take that last step home. And he said that he saw that her eyes were starting to get that fixed look. And if you've ever been at the bedside of someone who's passed, you understand what that means. He said he looked dead in her eyes so that if she could still see, he wanted to make sure that she saw his eyes. And he said, sweetheart, I love you. You go on home and I'll be there directly. And they said a tear rolled out of her eye. And that her husband grabbed her hand his handkerchief and he wiped her tear. He said, there, there, sweetheart. That's the last one. Because where God has prepared for us, there will be no more tears. There'll be no more loss. There'll be no more pain, no more struggle. No more tears. 
as we look at this passage today. <coughs> in Revelation chapter 7, if you go back and read chapter 6, you will see that there were seven seals. And six of those seals have been broken. And now we get to that seventh seal. And before it's broken, I don't know if you've ever watched a movie. They call this a, a parenthetical type of chapter. In other words, there's this, all this action going on. And then at the end of all this action, before the next action sequence takes place, we take a moment. Has anybody ever watched a movie where you see some, something happen? And you're like, that's weird. And then all of a sudden, it then goes back and says, two weeks before one month before or a year earlier, right? You get a glimpse of what the end result is going to be, but we're not there yet. And it's as if God does this all through Revelations where He'll have all this action and all these things that are happening as His wrath is being poured out. And these seven seals are the wrath of God. Within the first couple seals, we see that a whole quarter of the population is wiped out. There's all these terrible things that are happening and being unleashed. And then at the end of the sixth seal, before the seventh one's open, it's like God gives us a breath and says, okay, I know this is bad and I know this is tough, but listen, before you see the next thing that's going to be even worse, I want you to take a moment and just have a glimpse of what the end result's going to be. Because if you're not careful, you're going to see all the problems and all the trouble and all the wrath and not see that there is a purpose in it. And so I'm going to give you a taste of what the other side of this is going to be like. God does that through revelations in more than one place where he, he, he gives us a, a moment to take a breath. That's what we felt like here for the last year. Every time something else happens, we're like, Phew. finally we get a calm period. It's like, is this just a calm before the next storm? We've seen that in the world that we live in. And this is God giving us a breath and saying, listen, I want you to look. And that's why when we see this passage, it says, therefore, and you know what I'm going to say next, right? The whole corny thing of when you look at and you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself what it's there for. Something has happened previous to this because he says, therefore. In other words, he's, what he's saying is, he's like, based on what you just now know, therefore, or based on what's happened, now look. And so this passage that we read, therefore, they are before the throne of God. I mean, we love this passage is beautiful when you just take it right by itself, right? This is absolutely beautiful, right? There's going to be no more thirst. There's going to be no more hunger. The sun shall not scorch them anymore. The lamb is going to be in the midst of the throne and they will, he will be their shepherd. He will guide them the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear. So what has to happen to get to this? Because this is the place that we want to be. By the way, this is not the first time you'll see this kind of verbiage because this is what God has in store for all of his saints. Not just this group. You see, those of us who already know Christ that, that believe that we'll be taken up before the tribulation realize that we're already going to be in heaven and we're going to see chapter 7, verses 15 through 17. We're going to be there and we're going to be worshiping with them together. And that's going to be beautiful. But I want us to go back up and pick up the preceding text. Now, if you look at chapter 7, it's very confusing. It starts off with that number that everybody gets asked about. The 144,000. Have you ever heard of that before? Who's the 144,000? Who are they? Right, there are some groups 
in this world that claim to be the, they claim to be the 144,000, right? Jehovah's Witness being the first group. There was also, I can't remember the other guy's name, he had a leader that he called his Christ Church, and they believed they were the 144,000. There's all these different groups claiming, hey, we're the 144,000, the rest of y'all are the other losers, right? Some people even claim that if, well, if you pay enough into the church, then you could be a part of the 144,000. And I'm going to tell you right now that unless you were born out of the lineage of Israel, you ain't going to be the 144,000. Anybody else here got Israel in their lineage? So who are they? They are the children of Israel that will come to know Christ as the Messiah. And the Bible says later on in the text that these 144,000 will have his mark on their forehead. So in other words, they will be very distinguishable. You see, there's going to be this great tribulation. There's going to be this this terrible time of God's wrath being poured out for seven years. Daniel refers to it as the 70th week. There's going to be this seven years of tribulation, three and a half. The first three and a half is going to be bad. The second three and a half is going to be even worse than you can imagine, even after having gone through the first half. Majority of modern theologians believe that the church will be raptured up before this happens. There are some who believe that whoever's here on earth, that even though those who already know Christ will have to live through it. Again, those guys got doctorate degrees and I don't. And so, you know, I, I have my leanings and my tendency to lean toward the premillennial view. I believe the church will be taken up. Uh, but let's face it, we'll find out. Right? I've heard people, who are you, pre-millennial or all-millennial? I'm a pan-millennial. What's pan-millennial mean? I believe it'll all pan out. Exactly as God has said it will be. But during this great tribulation, the Antichrist is going to show up and he's going to, he's going to have everyone believe in he's something. Then there's going to be another to rise up. Well, actually, the first one is going to rise up in power and everybody's going to believe he's something. Then the Antichrist is going to come and it says that, that, that he has his horn grown out of his head. And what it is, is, is when you look at the text, it seems to appear that there is going to be this world leader who's going to end up probably an assassination attempt or something like that. And he's going to have what looks like a mortal wound, but he's not going to die. And when he doesn't die, everybody's going to think that this guy is it. He must have special powers. And many are going to believe. Many are going to, to follow him. But the fact is, is, is that even during this time of seven years, when God is pouring out his wrath upon the earth for what we have done and how we have sinned and how we have worshipped everything else, but God, as he pours out his wrath, it's not like he's leaving those people at that time without hope. You see, even in the worst tribulation, even in the worst time that we could ever imagine, God is still delivering hope. Amen. And what is that hope? You see, there's, there, there's, there's, two, there's two people groups, if you will, that are going to give hope. The Bible says there's going to be two witnesses. A lot of people have ideas of who they think they're going to be, Enoch and Elijah, because, you know, they were just taken up to heaven. They didn't die. And so some people think it's going to be them. We don't know who that's going to be. But there's going to be two witnesses. And those two witnesses are going to witness to all the people who are upon the earth. And the Bible says that all will see them. 
And we think about today, right? You can do something on the other side of the earth and within seconds you can see what's going on. Amen. We got satellite TV. We got YouTube live, Facebook live. Listen, it's not hard to even for us to comprehend in this time and day and age that we're living in for something to happen on the other side of the world and us know about it. Right. The likelihood of that is very, it, it, well, it, it's there. We have that, that technology now. Imagine John. John has been exiled on the Isle of Patmos and God is giving him this vision of revelation and he's writing all this stuff down. You imagine John trying to comprehend everybody seeing this at one time? But we can. We can. There'll be two witnesses that have miraculous powers. Those people who try to hurt them, the Bible says they will be able to breathe out fire upon them and consume them so nobody will be able to kill these people, these two witnesses. And then the next group is this, the 144,000. It'll be those who are of Israel who finally come to the place where they believe that Jesus Christ is truly the Messiah. So if you weren't born in the lineage of Israel, there's no chance that you're part of the 144. I'm just going to go ahead and lay that out there so you know. A lot of people ask, Listen, there's still some mystery around this. I'm not going to claim to know it all. But this 144,000 that will have his seal upon their forehead, they're going to go out and they're going to be witnessing. Do you see this? That even in the midst of God's wrath being poured out, he will have two miraculous witnesses and he'll have 144,000, 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe. That equals 144,000. That's where that number comes from. 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes. There's going to be 144,000 witnesses. Do you realize it only took 12 witnesses to turn the world upside down after Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and arose again on the third day? 12 disciples turned the world upside down, and the gospel went unto all nations. And this 144,000 are going to be out there proclaiming that after all these years, after all they've been taught, they finally see that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. Have you ever met a Jew that came to believe in Christ? Their message is so powerful. You see, I met one. Believe it or not, I met a Jew that had come to know Christ. You're not going to believe this. At the Jefferson County Fair. There's a lot of stuff you see at the fair. But this was this top to them all. I was playing with my family band. We were playing in this barn around a bunch of manure, right? It's hard to sing when you got stink flies everywhere, right? We was playing, and this woman heard this music, and she stopped, and she realized it was gospel music, and she came in and sat down, and afterwards, this is what she said. After we got done playing, she says, there's something I like, there's something unique about your voice, and I am recording a musical. Now listen, you don't ever expect me to be in a musical, right? I mean, come on. Right? I feel like dancing. <laughs> Never going to see me in a, in a musical. So since she said musical, I'm like, I ain't never seen Bill Monroe in a musical. Right? Nor Ricky Skaggs or anybody else that I like. Right? And Ralph Stanley never been in no musical. She says, I'm doing a musical and I, I would like your voice. There's something about your voice that's unique. And I would like you to do a couple songs on this project I'm recording the music for. 
I'm like, for a musical? She said, yeah. She goes, you see, I, I take it that you're a Christian, that you believe in Jesus Christ. I said, absolutely. She said, I was raised an Orthodox Jew. I can count my generations all the way back before the time of Christ. She said, and I believe like every other Jew. She goes, but then I had an encounter with Christ. My family has disowned me. And music is what I know, it's what I have in my heart. And I thought if I could write a musical, that they will at least come and see and hear because I have a part of it. And I'll deliver the gospel using the life of Paul for the basis of the musical. This woman spent every dime she had to record this, to do this project because she was trying to reach her entire family. And she said that she would go and she would go to the synagogues and she was telling me this the day that we were there recording. By the way, I, I agreed to do the project. I lost my copy of it. I have no idea what we did with it, a couple moves. I pray one of these days I'll find it so you can hear it and how goofy I sound. Anyway, it was an amazing day because we're there. And so we walk into the studio in, in right outside of Dallas, between Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas. And we walk into this studio and the guy who's actually running the soundboard looks like, well, he scared me to death. Turns out he was the monitor engineer for Alice Cooper, right? I didn't know then that Alice Cooper had come to know Christ. And so did, his, so did his monitor engineer. So this guy's got tears rolling down his face while we were recording. And she starts to tell me how she had been ousted by her entire family, but one by one, they contact her and they're like, we want to know a little bit more about this. I mean, I, it's not how we were raised, but how, how did you come to think that Jesus is the Messiah? I mean, and one by one, she was winning her family to Christ. Let me tell you something. I don't think there's any more powerful testimony than the testimony of one who was raised as a Jew who comes to believe in Jesus as the Messiah of the world. And so even during this time of wrath going out into the world, God has these two witnesses with miraculous powers and there's going to be 144,000 that come out of the tribes of Israel that are going to go throughout the world preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And now that we go back to the preceding text, let's go to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and let's see how many, let's see how many people come to Christ. And in chapter 9, I mean, chapter 7, starting at verse 9, it says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their face. By the way, go back to chapter 4 and you will see uh, this same picture, right? Uh, and all of those who are already uh, saints of God are there. 
who've already died and gone on. It says, and then they fell their faces uh, on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be our God forever and ever, amen. And one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where they come from? And he said to him, sir, you know. Now think about it for a minute. He's asking John, and where do these people come from? This is what that means. John's like, you know. In other words, I ain't sure, but I'm sure you do, so please tell me. And he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So as horrifying as this great tribulation is, still God is sending people before the people upon the earth. He's pouring out his wrath exactly as he promised he would. But even in the middle of pouring out his wrath, even in the time of this great tribulation, God is loving his creation. Even in time of tribulation in our lives, folks, he is loving his creation. So let's, I want to just take a quick gander at each one of these verses, and we'll, I'll walk you through this. It says in verse 9, After I looked, there was a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and a nation, all tribes of people, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Think about this. This is the great commission being completed. The great commission was to What? Go into Judea, right? And then to the uttermost, to Jerusalem, Judea, and everywhere. Go everywhere proclaiming Christ to every people group, every tribe and every nation and every language. We are to try and go and reach for the cause of Christ. And we see here that when they, here they are now being presented in heaven in the, upon the, around the throne of God because they've been washed white as snow by the blood of Jesus Christ because they have believed upon Him in faith believing that He would save even in the worst tribulation. By the way, think about that for a second. We live in a world now that's so skeptical that when problems come in their life, well, how can God say that he loves us? How can he be a loving God? How can God even exist because evil exists in the world? Listen, evil exists because man chooses to do so. That's a whole discussion about free will we'll have another time. But I do challenge you to get on Wednesday night because we talked about that in depth, didn't we? We covered many verses so we could understand what the free will of man is like. And I ask you this, just as one thing about free will. Can you truly praise God and can it be truly your heart praising him if you were made to do it? But instead, God gives us a choice. Remember what Joshua said as they're getting ready to cross into the promised land? Right? If you think God is evil, then you choose the God you want to serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He said, choose you this day whom you will serve. We have choice. Free will. We have this self-sovereignty, if you will. But even that is limited. God is the only truly sovereign one. But we have the sovereignty in the way of that we can make choices. Now, we can't choose to flap our arms and fly. Although on YouTube, some have tried. And failed. And gone viral. That's beside the point. Right? We can't choose to be God. Right? So our choices are limited, but yet we do have choices. Specifically the choice to praise Him 
or to curse him. And the tribulations that we have in our life, I'm going to tell you right now, fail in comparison to what they're going to see. But that tribulation, that trouble, and that time, you know what tribulation truly does for us? It presents us with the reality that we do not have control of the world. It presents us with a reality that life here is limited, that we have an expiration date. It shocks us back into to, to being aware of the fact that we go on day to day and we think, well, I'm going to go over here and I'm going to go over there and I'm making plans for next week. Listen, next week may never come for you or for I. We don't have control of that. And listen, this great tribulation is going to make them keenly aware that they don't have control of anything outside of their own free will. And many will be shocked into that reality and realize that there is a great God who loves me, who's still offering me salvation and requires nothing from me except my praise. I also love the picture that we see here that when we get to heaven, a lot of people are like, what are we going to be like when we get to heaven? I don't know. I'm going to be dashing. I can tell you that right now. I'm going to be handsome. I'm going to have hair, wavy. Oh, or that or I want to, either that or I, I might have, a, I want to look like JJ or Meadowlark Lemon. Y'all remember Meadowlark Lemon? He had all that hair. I want that. I want to walk around and you see my hair around the corner before my belly does. Y'all know what I mean? By the way, I want to be skinny when I get to heaven. I don't know what I'm going to be like. I often wonder, too, are they going to have angel food cake there? But do you see that these people are distinguished? They're, when we get to heaven, the Bible says we'll be known as we're known. And so when John is being shown this picture in heaven of what will to come, remember John's seeing the future of what will come. When he sees there, he sees every tribe and every nation. The gospel message having gone out through all the world. And he sees there that they still have their identity. They're still people. They're still individuals. God made us that way. You'll know me from Brother Tony, from Brother Chris. You'll know Sally from Mary. You'll know all each other from each other. There were all these distinguished people here. The Great Commission has been completed and been fulfilled. And it says that they were clothed in white robes. And they were white because of what Jesus did. Remember, our righteousness is not ours. Because you and I are not righteous. The Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And if I were to explain in the Hebrew what the filthy rags really stand for, well, there's young kids in there, I can't do that. But trust me, you would realize that filthy means filthy. All of our righteousness, in other words, any good that you think you can do, the Bible says, is, is, is like filthy rags. The best you can do is not good enough. The best I can do is not good enough. The best anyone can do on this earth is never going to be good enough. But listen, that doesn't mean we don't strive to live. Because the Bible says, right, God says, I am holy, therefore be you holy. It doesn't mean we don't strive. We shouldn't be okay with ongoing sin in our lives. If we are, then I truly ask you, who's Lord of your life, you or him? 
Because if we're okay with sin, if we keep committing sin and we're just okay with it, and we say, well, God, you know, you made me like this, so you know it. Listen, then you're settling, and then I ask you truly to say, who's most important in your life, you or God? But they had their, they had their, the robes on, they were clothed. And by the way, this is what a, this is what a wedding would have looked like back in that time. We go all the way back to Matthew chapter 22, and I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm going to read just, if you have the app open, you'll see there's a whole big passage there, uh, verses 1 through 14. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to take you to verse 1. It says, And Jesus spoke with them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And this king told him to go out and find, you know, all the people. When they got there, everybody was too busy. They had other things. Some people even got mad and, and, and stuff, and... And so, you know, they come back and said, we can't get nobody to come to the wedding. Then they could you know, go out to the highways and the byways. And you've probably heard the story before. He said, go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Remember, Jesus said that he came and his own received him not. That's what Jesus is trying to portray here with this parable. And because the Jews rejected him, the gospel was opened up to all people groups. Jews and Gentiles alike. We are grafted into the family of God. But as was their custom, when they get to this wedding, they would be given this, this wedding robe to put on. And in, chapter, in verse 11, it says this, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to them, Friend, how did you get here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, he tried to get in by another way. He wasn't given the wedding garment. This wedding garment, this pure white garment that was washed with the blood of Jesus can only be given to us by Jesus himself. Listen, we are invited to a great wedding, if you didn't know it. And guess who the, the guests of honor, guess who the bride is? It is you and I, the church. And we will have our wedding garment on that will be completely white as snow because of what Jesus did for us. Amen. And if you've ever seen a bride and a groom on a wedding, wedding day. Listen, there is nothing more beautiful than the way a, a husband-to-be will look at a bride-to-be as she comes down. Hasn't seen each other all day. Y'all know we ain't allowed to see each other, right? They keep you separate. Then all of a sudden when that bride comes marching down there with that wedding march and starts to come down the aisle and you look and you're like, mm-mm-mm, right? Boy, am I a lucky man. This is the greatest day of my life. And this and this is going to be the greatest day that will never end because we, my friends, are the bride and we've been set apart and there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if your garment hasn't been washed by the blood of Jesus, then you will be kicked into outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It says in verse 9 that they have palm branches in their hand. Palm branches is a celebration of victory. By the way, I want us to just take a moment and think about the contrast between Palm Sunday of what we see in the scripture about what Palm Sunday was like versus the picture that we see here. You remember the story of Palm Sunday? Jesus told him to go get that donkey, right? That had never been sat on. You go get that donkey. And Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. 
And people got all worked up and they were throwing their garments out and they were waving palm branches. Why? Because palm branches was a, was a symbol of victory. Imagine today that if we were to have some kind of, you know, uh, well, Lord, I don't even want to mention some of the things that's happened in, in the past. But if you could imagine if there were a parade of some sort, right, uh, or things how it used to be when everybody was kind of, uh, patriotic and things of that nature, right? Uh, when the soldiers would come home and they would have parades and people would be waving their flags, right? They'd have their little flags on a stick. Some people have big old flags. Everybody got different size flags, but everybody be waving their flags and we would all be one people and so excited that our soldiers come home. Can y'all have ever seen stories about that back when people used to be patriotic? Now we're scared to wave any kind of flag these days. But you get the idea. That's what the palm branch was. They didn't have a, a state flag, if you will, but these palm branches represented victory. And they would have parades when the armies would come from being afar off and in their conquest. And when they would come back, uh, especially in the Greek culture, uh, the generals would be paraded through on their white chariots and people would be waving their palm branches saying, Victory! Victory! And on Palm Sunday, they were crying out, Hosanna! 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 Save us! And when Jesus didn't save them like they wanted to be saved, within a few days they were crying out, crucify, crucify. So what's different now? Now they're crying out with a loud voice, not save us. They're crying out, we are saved. Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne of the Lamb. That's what they're crying out. They're no longer crying out, save us. Instead, they're waving their palm branches and they're saying, we are saved. Salvation has come home. God owns it and He delivered me even in the worst of troubles. Listen, there is going to be a victory cry in heaven and we are going to wave our palm branches and we're going to cry out, victory! Victory through the blood of the Lamb and salvation belongs to Almighty God. We will no longer have to cry out, save us. Instead, we cry out, we are saved and delivered for an eternity. It's much different than the picture we see when Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Verse 11, 12 talks about the angels standing around the throne. And then the elders, and they fell on their faces, and they worshiped God. That worship is happening around the throne of God. When you look in Revelation chapter 3 and 4, we'll see a, a beautiful picture. After he talks to the churches, he then sees this picture in heaven and God's throne. And the, it, there's this light radiating uh, from it. It looks like an, an emerald, uh, this complete emerald, and this light is shining. And these elders, they're bowed, and they're worshiping him. And there are these creatures there, and they have six wings. And they fly around, and they cry out, holy, holy, holy. And then the elders cry back in concert with him, right? glory to God Almighty who is holy, right? And I'm paraphrasing there, but there's this continual praise around the throne of God. Why? Because salvation belongs to Him, friends. And listen, if you're here and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you should be crying out to Him, holy, holy, holy. Salvation belongs to Almighty God. I didn't earn it, but He's given it to me because He loves me and because He cares about me. Holy Holy, holy. Oh my, instead of oh me, amen. 
Oh my, how He's done for me and how He would look upon me after all that I would done, yet still yet He would love and He would care for me and that He would rescue me from the hell that I deserve and that I've earned through my actions till yet He would love me. Salvation belongs to Him. Amen. That's what we ought to be crying out instead of God, why did you let me go through this? Instead of saying, God, thank you for bringing me through this and I know that no matter what it is down here, I know that I will be rescued from here and there will be a time where all tears will be wiped away from our eyes and we'll never have any pain nor thirst nor hunger or ever desire anything again for an eternal time in heaven. If that don't bless you, your blessers broke. If that don't strike a fire, then your wood's wet. We see this worship and this praise. There are times that I, I think that I'd like to just sit down with God for a minute. I don't know about you, but I've been stressed as far as stress could get, it seems like, for the last two weeks. And every person I know that is having trouble, it seems like their trouble is the worst that it could be. And as a pastor, it breaks your heart. And just, I, I told Sal, I'll be quite honest with you. I told Sal this morning about 8 o'clock. This is the first time in years. I don't feel like preaching. I feel better. First time in years. Not because I don't believe God is able. But sometimes we look at the trouble and the tribulation. And we look at the size and intensity of that instead of looking at the size and the intensity of Almighty God. You see, I don't have to save these people. I just got to love them. I can't save them. I can love them. And I can share. But there is a Savior who can save them. Maybe you're like me, and sometimes the size of the problem is the only thing that I can see. You know, if you see something afar off, you ever see them stupid pictures people take now because everybody's got a, everybody's a photographer now, right? We all, everybody's a professional photographer. I'm going to go do a photo shoot, which means I'm getting my iPhone 12 out with the latest camera, right? Because now I can zoom. I can zoom in and not be fuzzy. Everybody's, right? I think that, by the way, I think that we are, you know, we are being very not nice to the people who actually purchase cameras and know what they're doing, right? I know some photographers, and they invested a lot of money. Here, I got my iPhone 12. I'm a photographer. Come on, Chris, let's do a photo shoot pose, right? Oh, let's get a selfie. An iPhone 12 does not mean you're on a photo shoot, Okay. But you ever seen them, I don't know why I even said that, but that's just a side point. You ever seen them pictures where you take an iPhone and they take something way off in the distance and they take their fingers and make it look like they're holding it? Somebody did the, the, the Washington, uh, uh, yeah, thank you, that thing, Washington Monument, right? That thing looks like a big pencil that's probably a waste of taxpayers' money. But anyway, that thing. 
and they're back here and they're way back. If you've ever been down next to that, you'll know that there's a big, right, big grassy area around that whole thing. And so you can get way back here. He got way back and he did this and it made it look like he was holding a Washington Monument with his fingers. I guess he wanted to feel like Hawk that day, you know, watch me hold, I hold Monument. Now we look at it, we laugh, you're like, that's really funny, we know how he did it, right? Or you ever seen the people look like they're climbing a mountain and they look like they're struggling, hanging on a rock, and then you realize the grass is growing straight out this way? All they're doing is laying on a rock. They just tilted their camera the right way. Anybody ever seen that one? But you know, when you look afar off, sometimes we mistake the size. My fingers look real big because they're close to me. But that Washington Monument's much bigger than my little old fingers could ever hold. You see, that's what the devil tries to do to your perception. You see, a lot, of, a lot of the issue is us not having the right perception sometimes. Sal and I got to go to Marbella, Spain, back in 2004. Absolutely beautiful. Our hotel room was on the Mediterranean. Marbella is a Mediterranean sea town, or beach town, actually. It's a popular destination for European vacationers. So we were there, it was, it was like March, and uh, we had this, 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 this hotel room where we could walk out on our balcony and we could look right there, it was the Mediterranean Ocean. And I just thought about the Mediterranean and how many of the saints of old may have been on a boat out there in that, in that sea. I kind of thought that was pretty cool. And, but I look afar off and I could see this thing and it looked familiar to me. Right, it looked familiar, and I was looking, and I'm like, I really, I've seen that before. Does anybody ever think like this? I do it. Sometimes I just, you can tell I'm thinking because I'm positioned like this. I'm, like, I'm easy to read, right? That looks familiar, Sal said it all too. Why? That's the Rock of Gibraltar. Oh, the Prudential insurance logo. That's where I saw it from. Because I'm like, how am I supposed to recognize this stuff? I've never been to Spain before. It's my first time. I recognized the rock. It was the rock of Gibraltar. And it was way out there, but it had that shape, right? It looked just like it does on that Prudential commercial. And I was like, oh, it looked so small. Well, we were supposed to go to Morocco the next day, and something had happened, and the State Department cut off all travel for U.S. citizens to Morocco. And so we, uh, they end up saying, hey, the trip's canceled to Morocco, uh, but what we're going to do, instead of going to Morocco, we're going to take you to Gibraltar. I'm like, cool, I could see that rock. And I'm like, I figured we would just float by it on the boat or something, right? Just, you know, float on by. That thing's huge. There's a whole town on it. It's not just a little rock. They got an airport. They land jumbo planes on that rock. But for my hotel room, it looks so itty bitty. You see, if we can keep Revelation chapter 7 in view and understand its size and intensity and what it's going to be like when this life is over, it makes the problems not look near as big. So instead of looking at Gibraltar, from my hotel room, 
Maybe I need to go to Gibraltar. You see, I, I can't go physically to the throne of heaven. But I can get on my knees and go to the throne of God anytime that I want. And guess what I can do and you can do as well? I can participate with these saints and elders. Many who have already there, right? There are saints that have already gone home. There are elders already there. The throne of God is there and they're praising him. If you don't believe that, go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 6 and see what Isaiah saw in chapter 6 and then compare that to what you see in Revelation. It's been happening forever and ever. They're crying around the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's where Carrie Joe got that line from the scripture. You see, my problems look a lot smaller when I'm in at the throne than they do when I'm looking at the problem with the throne of God afar off. You see, if I go into his presence and I participate with the worship that's happening around the throne of God. If I will get on my knees and go into his presence, and listen, we have that ability and the honor's been given to us because of what Jesus did. When he died on the cross, the Bible says the veil that separated us from the Holy of Holies, the place where God would come down and commune with his people, that place that was only allowed for the, for the high priest, that, ba- that veil, what Bible says, was rent in twain. In other words, it was cut in two and it was opened up so that you and I, I could go into the presence of God because of what Jesus did. And when we're in the presence of God, the troubles don't look big. Why? Because God is bigger. Amen. He's bigger than any problem you have. He's bigger than any hurt, any pain we're experiencing. And so sometimes it's a matter of perspective. Listen, that doesn't mean the pain don't hurt. Oh, it hurts. Does not mean the problem doesn't exist? Oh, it exists. But who will I trust? Will I trust God enough to go into his presence and say, God, I know that problem's bigger than me. But it sure ain't bigger than you. If we will fall down in worship. When Chris has to, sometimes it's like pumping a dry well in here. Anybody ever went to one of them old hand pumps? My dad had one in the front yard for years, had one of them old things, right? Every now and then it would rain and we could get water out of that pump because it still had suction. But it was only stuck that far down in the dirt. Other people come up, oh man, I'm thirsty. Is that pump working? They grab that pump and they just pump and nothing come out. I'm laughing. I'm over at the hose bib turning it on, drinking out of the hose. Anybody else drink out of the hose? Ain't nothing like taste of a good garden hose. Makes me feel like home. Sometimes we're in here trying to pump a dry well because everybody comes in with all the problems. You carry them in, and you're not even polite enough to drop them off. I was on a job site with a guy up in New Jersey Thursday night. 
It was, it was into the evening hours. It was about 7 o'clock in the evening, and I was about tired, if you know what I mean. And we're trying to figure out this problem. And here come one of them technicians eating a popsicle. I like to lost it. You would think that if two guys from the factory would drive four hours each to get to the job, to look at a job, you would think that you would at least be alert and, and aware and be ready to do the work because we came here because you had a problem. We're trying to help solve the problem. And you're all finding popsicles in some freezer that belonged to the customer you shouldn't have been touching anyway. I did ask him if there was more, though. <laughs> For the ride home. I mean, think about it. If you're going to sit in God's presence, would you, would you make the best use of time? Or will you sit and do other stuff and when God is pecking on your heart's door, wait a second, God, wait a second. I got one more left on this crossword puzzle and I'll, I'll get to you then. Or wait a second, God, I'm too, I'm too busy worrying about other stuff that I'm supposed to give to you, but I can't because I think that I'm smarter than you are. Y'all get what I'm saying? You see, the Bible says that when we would gather, two or three gathered in his name, he would be in the midst. And would we dare sit in God's midst, in, in his presence? We see what's going on in the throne room of heaven. Don't you see it here? It's, in plain, it's black and white. There's worship going around heaven at the throne of God all the time. And God would come down in our midst and be in our presence, in, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we would do something else other than cry out, holy, holy, holy. In worship? Is there anything else that could be more important than the worship and the presence of God? I mean, is, is there anything else? In verses 13 and 14, of course, he asked John, who are these people? And he says he's the one to come out of the great tribulation. I want to point out something about the Great Tribulation. I want you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. I'll be done here shortly. I'm sure you've heard of this passage before and I've had people ask me about it. In Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 through 18, it says this. Also, it causes all, both small and great. It's talking about the Antichrist. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. There's an important thing to remember here. Sometimes in life, we try to straddle the fence. 
or we have some false sense of confidence where we want to be a Christian, but we also want to look like the world. We all struggle with it. There's not one, including me, that doesn't deal with that. And if we're not careful, we'll be fooled into thinking that we can live our life the way we choose. And we call the shots and not ask God for what His will is and what it is to, to meet our purpose as He's designed us to be. Instead, we decide our own purpose and we go after life the way we want it and we attend church enough to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. We're like, well, at least I'm attending church, I'm doing this, but I've got, my, I've got plans. You see, when it comes to the Great Tribulation, there ain't going to be no straddling the fence. Right now, people can walk in out of church, we can look churchy, and I don't know your heart. I'm not God. I can't tell you that you should have confidence before God or not. Only you, that's between you and God. You have to come to that conclusion in your heart, in your mind, of whether you truly call Him Lord or not, because that's what makes a difference. It's not about saying a prayer. It's not saying, about saying this prayer, I said this prayer, now everything is good, I do my best, and we roll on with it. No, he said if we would call him Lord. Will we call him Lord? Will we confess him as Lord? Which means he gets to choose. That means he is the number one priority. That means when it comes down to making a decision about whether I do what God says or what I do what I want, it's what God says that gets a priority because he's the one that defines good and what is right. I challenge people all the time, the people who say that they can be a Christian and don't need to go to church, they don't understand the scripture and they're fooling themselves. You literally say that you can bear the mark of Christ and that you could be one of his followers and in the family of God, yet you don't even like to visit his house? Why would you want to go to heaven? There's worship there. You don't want to worship here? Why would you even dare want to go to heaven? You want to go to heaven? Nah, there's too much worship there. Of course, then the argument, there's churches got hypocrites. Sure, we well, yeah, come join us. We could be a whole band of them. I don't know anybody in here is perfect yet. If you are, you let me know. I want to see that. But you see, when it comes to this period of time, there's no more playing. There's no more straddling the fence. There's no more trying to look churchy and look like I love God or look like that I got it, you know, I got things figured out. There ain't none of that. You see, there's going to be a definite mark. You're either going to take the mark or you're not. And if we look at the reasoning that people use today to try to decide whether God is worthy of their praise or not, that ain't going to fly. Because we're like, well, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. I've been told that one a couple times when it comes to tough stuff. Well, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. I'm like, well, it depends on what makes you happy. If sin makes you happy, then yes, God wants you unhappy. Amen? But knowing that you're pleasing God should bring you great joy. So withholding from doing something that might be fun, the Bible says there's, right, there's pleasure in sin for a season. But then the destruction comes. 
So let's face it, there are things that we shouldn't be doing that are fun. But if we truly want to be pleasing to God, then we should be able to understand what joy is. And joy is not about always being physically happy, but it's having a peace that comes from worshiping God even in the worst of moments, even in the toughest of times. But make no mistake, this group here that will have to go through this, there ain't going to be no play in church. Because if you actually want to be able to feed your family, if you want to be able to buy and sell and work and have money and trade that money in for goods and services, you're going to have to take the mark of the beast. Otherwise, you can't buy or sell. So let's use that logic people use. Today. Well, God wouldn't want me unhappy. He wouldn't want me to, to have any undue stress. God wouldn't want me to go hungry or any of that kind of stuff. Did, did you read the same passage I just read? If you take the mark, you're done. Eternity in hell is what awaits you. But if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ and trust him for your food and your provisions and trust that God knows how to take care of his people, then you will see this beautiful picture that we read in the beginning of this where the multitude of all tribes and nations were worshiping around the throne of God. Revelation chapter 14, let's go to the next chapter and let me read a passage for you. Starting at verse 9, it says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call, look at verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith is in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Did you get the picture here? There ain't going to be no straddling the fence at this time. This seven years is going to be the most awful that our earth has ever seen, but it's also going to be the biggest revival that has ever occurred in mankind. Because multitudes will trust Jesus. You know why? because they won't have any other choice. Their choice is either to worship the beast and know that they are going to be in hell forever. The only hope that will be available will be in Jesus Christ. You either take the mark so you can be with the world, buy and sell, and have a good time for a, for a few years, but know that an eternity in pain and suffering is going to be your destination and it will last for an eternity. Or I will trust Jesus Christ and trust him not only for my salvation, but I'm going to have to trust him even for where my next meal is coming from. You see, when we look at the scriptures, we see that there's only these two choices. But guess what, folks? It's still the same two choices we have today. Today. 
will either try to be pleasing to the world and play their game. You know the game the world plays, right? You're good only as long as you provide something for me that I need in the moment I no longer need you. Right? The world wants you as long as you don't make a mistake or say the wrong thing. Or as long as you look a certain look. The first morning you wake up with that big old zit on your nose, you're done for, you're no longer popular, you're no longer pretty. Life has changed. The world will chew you up and spit you out and give you no hope. You see, it's still the only same two choices that we have. So he calls for the endurance of the saints. How do we endure? Here's what endurance really means. Endurance is that I will trust in Jesus no matter what. Romans 8, 35, I talked about this before I sang the song. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? You know what he's asking there? He's like, what, what kind of suffering could you endure in your life? What kind of suffering could come into your life that would make you question whether God loves you or not? That's the real question here. And I can tell you that we, many here have endured a lot. But we ain't never seen nothing like it's going to be poured out on the earth in this seven years. So I'll leave you where we started. Revelations chapter 7, verses 15 through 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. That means they did hunger for a while. Did you get that? They'll hunger no more, which means they were hungry at one time. They'll thirst, won't thirst anymore, but they did thirst for a while. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. That means they went through the fire. They were, they were through a rough time. But that's all over. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear. So that leaves you with this. We can choose to trust God and realize that tears doesn't mean God doesn't love us. But this ain't heaven. All of our tears aren't going to be wiped away here. They're going to be wiped away up there. While we're here, there's going to be pain. And let me tell you, if this does not blow the health and wealth gospel completely out of the water, I don't know what does. Those people who want to say that, you know, God always wants you healthy and wealthy, they obviously have thrown out the majority of the New Testament because it's just not there. What we see even in the early churches, the people who were wealthy gave it away. Why? Because it's all about the gospel. I can't take it with me. 
There's nobody dragging a U-Haul around in heaven with their stuff. Matter of fact, the Bible even says that it's tough for a rich man to even enter heaven. It's easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle. Why? Because people who have a lot tend to trust themselves. Because there are times in my life, folks, that when I had money in the bank, I didn't have a whole lot of time for God. I was too busy doing the other stuff, making the money. I was able to pay all the bills and had money left over, and so I really didn't need them. It's when all that dried up, and I didn't know where the next thing was coming from, and I had a wife and children that needed to eat. Those are the times I got serious with God. Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Now, we was talking about that one time in a Bible study with some good friends of ours. And Brother Brooks said this. He says, you know, God's not really saying to pluck your eye out. But if you're having problems looking at something, you need to not look at it no more. You need to remove that something. And that's when Kathy, his wife, spoke up. She says, I think it means pluck it out. I mean, really, wouldn't you rather go to heaven with one eye missing, knowing that you're going to get it back there, than to miss heaven because you can't stop sinning because you find yourself to be meeting your needs more important than worshiping God? If your right hand offends you, cut it off, it says. I don't know about you, but I'd be just like a weeble wobble if I cut off all the things that bring me trouble. The only thing I would have left is the pertinent organs it takes to make this big body run. You see, when we get to heaven, we'll thirst no more. We'll hunger no more. We'll have no more need. But while we're here, we'll have them. God never says we won't. He promises when we get there, He'll dry up our tears. When we get there, we'll hunger no more. We'll thirst no more. While we're here, we'll have needs. We'll go through times where things will be pretty sufficient. Then we'll go through times where they won't. You see, those who are going to persevere are those who are not going to listen to the devil saying, Ha ha, I thought God loved you. You used to have stuff and now you don't. If a God really loved you, he wouldn't let you do that. Or you're going to, or maybe you'll go through a physical ailment. Maybe you'll hear the word cancer in your life. Like we heard in my wife's. And the tempter does come, trust me, even for pastors and their wives. You've, getting, you've gotten rid of everything for the ministry's sake. And you get that anyway. Oh, trust me. Devil comes at us too. But I ain't serving him to have an easy life here. I serve him because when I get there for eternity, I'll have no more tears. When I get there, I'll be able to see palms. The victory crown of glory, palm of victory, I shall wear.
I get there. These people came through the worst tribulation that our earth will ever see. It doesn't mean that what you're going through is not tough. But we should be encouraged because if they could endure with God's help, then so can you. If you're here today, you're not sure whether you trust Jesus or not. And Satan's been telling you that the life you lead and the tough times that you go through are reason not to believe. I want to tell you that he's a liar and a father of it because he's the reason you should believe. Your troubles and trials here, they exist because sin is on this earth. Trust him with your life and I promise you, you'll not be disappointed. Because there ain't a house built, and I've been in some nice ones, folks. In my line of work, I've seen mansions upon mansions. I've walked in foyers that were bigger than my entire house. And I've met a lot of unhappy people that live in them. But none of that, no matter how beautiful it is, is going to compare to the beauty of my father's house. There's an old Southern Gospel song used to say, just wait till you see my brand new home with its mansions and beauty rare. Nothing here can compare. Wait till you see my brand new home. My Heavenly Father is building me and I'm going to occupy it for free. Wait till you see my brand new home. Would you stand?